welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 120, recorded April 6th, 2013. I like how you throw in the chat there at the end. Yes, 2013. Mr. Donovan. This is our 57th 90s episode. Uh, Next Generation Today, 64 through 66. Very nice. Very nice. The first two wrap up a uh, story arc, and then we have a third comic story. Yeah. Which is a standalone. And it might have a, uh, a message at the end. Oh, the third comic? Yes. Oh, it definitely has a message. <laughs> it, it, it actually has two messages, and it beats you over the head with it. But we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to indeed. it. does indeed. Yes. At the cost of the story, quite frankly. But Okay, so... Do you want to continue with 64, or have we got some business up front? I don't know if we really have any business. Uh, in your synopsis, do you do you remind our listeners what happened in the previous issues, since it has been a while since we went over these? I kind of do. I think I've got enough to, to give background. Okay. All right. Well, then we don't need to recap or anything. Well, let me just say quickly that... We we do have an away mission where Jordy and his team is on a runabout and they've gone into a planet that has some instability and they've crashed and they've basically found another runabout just like theirs and they found alternate versions of themselves. So that's one of the main storylines. And then there's another storyline that involves intrigue with Cardassians and Romulans right, that Picard so- is dealing with. So if none if the none of that sounds familiar to you, uh, go back and re-listen to episode one one five, the real episode one one five, not the April Fool's joke episode episode one one five. Yes, yes, and I did enjoy the April Fool's episode. Yeah, of course, of course, it was fun. It's good having Brian on. Okay, so I've got the first one, issue sixty four. Its title is The Deceivers. Published date, October 1994. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman. Penciler, Daryl Skelton. Colorist, Rick Taylor. Letterer, Bob Panaha. Margaret Clark is the editor. The cover shows Jordy in his normal gold uniform, staring at a bearded version of himself in a red uniform, and they are both on an alien world. A runabout is positioned behind them. The alternate Jordy is holding a phaser on our Jordy. The story picks up where the last issue left off. Jordy and his team, who is surveying planet Beta Argotha 1, which has an accelerated rate of evolutionary change, is a scientific wonder. While uh, coming down for a landing on the planet, they make an emergency landing. While assessing their situation, post-crash, they find a second Starfleet runabout with the identical markings to their own. Shortly thereafter, they come face-to-face with the other runabout's crew, who is led by an alternate version of Geordi, but manned by a different set of Starfleet personnel than Geordi Prime's team. Alternate Geordi tells them their story. 
A lovely young female member of the alternate team says their mission was more urgent as they were racing to stop a tiny rogue star from impacting with the Aragotha system's sun and thereby wiping out the entire system, including the population of Beta Aragotha 6, who is at a medieval level of development. Jordy Prime points out that in their dimension there is no Beta Aragotha 6. 5 is the outermost planet. Their plan was to send in a runabout with a device that would alter the rogue star's trajectory, then get back out of the system. Instead, magnetic anomalies turned out to be stronger than predicted, and they crashed on this planet before they could carry out their mission. Alternate Geordi proposes to use Geordi Prime's runabout, which is in better shape, to complete the mission and save the system. Geordi Prime turns the plan down flatly. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is still nose-to-nose with a Cardassian warship. So far, Picard is refusing to give up his Romulan guest, but he is trying to find out from Dr. Tavarok why the Cardassians want him so bad. Dr. Tavarok simply says the Cardassians want him to continue developing his dilithium-eating weapon. With such a weapon, the Cardassians would have a tactical advantage in any future conflicts with the Federation. Picard says granting asylum to him would be possible unless Tavarok actually did commit a crime against the Cardassians, as they claim. Suddenly, Picard is called to the bridge to see a Romulan warbird enter the scene. He opens a channel to the warbird's captain. Picard tells him he is trespassing in Federation space and to vacate. The warbird captain says he will leave as soon as he has Dr. Tavarok. The Romulan commander claims Tavorak killed his own wife, who happens to be the daughter of a high-ranking Romulan politician. Picard confronts the Romulan commander about the dilithium-eating virus Tavarak was working on. He does not deny that Tavarak is a scientist, but says the idea of a dilithium-eating virus is ridiculous. He says Tavarak is a deceiver of the First Order. He talked the Cardassians into giving him passage out of Romulan space through lies and now he's attempting to gain Federation asylum with the same tactic. The Cardassian commander breaks into the conversation saying he has been monitoring the conversation and informs Picard the Romulan commander himself is lying about the Cardassians involvement in this. He goes on to explain that his people were not talked into transforming Tavarok, rather the Cardassians extricated Tavarok from the Romulan Empire to stand trial for his crimes, killing 700 Cardassian colonists with an experimental virus. The virus was meant to decimate the Cardassian population, making their absorption into the Romulan Empire an easy task. They tested the virus on the colony, but found only a 10% effective rate, which is far too few to support the Romulan plans. After he was kidnapped and transported this far, Tavarok found a way to kill the Cardassian crew, but was trapped in the ship until the Enterprise arrived. Picard asked for any proof of the Cardassian charges. The Cardassian commander has none. Since both claims to Tavarok have been heard, and they both have an equal lack of evidence to support either story, Picard terminates the connection and gathers his senior staff to discuss the situation. Arguments as to which of the three parties are lying are heard. Picard comes to the conclusion that they can't afford to give Tavarok up, 
If he's telling the truth about the dilithium-eating virus, they can't let him go. If he is not telling the truth, but have no proof of him committing a crime against the Romulans or the Cardassians, they have a moral obligation to hold on to him. Picard says they will investigate the Cardassian transport in hopes of gaining clues as to who is telling the truth. Meanwhile, back on Darwin's planet, Geordi Prime's team and the alternate Geordi's team are trying to work out their next course of action. Though alternate Geordi wants to take the only working runabout to deal with the rogue sun that threatens his dimension, Geordi Prime points out that they are not even sure which dimension they have both been transported to. They could just as easily be in Geordi Prime's dimension, where there is no rogue sun. Both teams agree to work together on exactly where they are and then attack the most critical problem they can. They start by working on the runabouts to get them ready to support whatever their next moves turn out to be. On the Enterprise, Picard tells Dr. Tavarok about his dilemma. Tavarok tells him if he could prove his version of the truth is indeed correct, he would do that, but he has no proof, so he can't do it. Picard tells him he expected that response, and that is why he is sending a team over to the derelict Cardassian ship to see what it can tell them. Riker and his away team beam over to the derelict ship in spacesuits. Riker deploys his team to make the most use of their time on the derelict. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, they are first contacted by the Romulan ship, saying Picard is unnecessarily delaying. Then the Cardassian commander calls, telling Picard they have no right to transport Federation personnel onto the Cardassian property. Suddenly, a Ferengi ship, Raider class, enters the sector and then promptly turns around and departs. Picard is perplexed by why a Ferengi ship would enter the area, then turn around and leave. Are they involved now somehow? Meanwhile on the planet, work continues on the runabouts until the alternate away team draw their phasers on Geordi Prime and his away team. Alternate Geordi says they are taking the runabout to stop the rogue star. Alternate Geordi has no proof, but has a feeling he is in his dimension, and they have to stop the rogue star. He goes on to explain that they have reprogrammed the runabout's computer to disable Geordi Prime Team's phasers. His team will take the runabout and go it alone, and they can't do anything about it. With a clear view of the muzzle of Geordi Alternate's phaser, the issue ends. To be continued. And that alternate Geordi is a jerk. He is a jerk, but as I did not point out in the synopsis, because it was long enough, sorry about that, they do make the point at one point where Geordi Prime is talking to Deanna that maybe he would do the same thing if he knew the risks to life and property and it would be part of his duty. So that might drive him to do the same thing. So, yeah. But still, yes. Better to work together than to work separately. Right. And on those last few pages, did you notice that alternate Geordie's has a, a magic communicator that can appear and disappear on his chest at whim? Ah, I did not notice that. <laughs> <laughs> so his, his funky-looking alternate com badge. Right. Which it, it does have that different look, which I think you had mentioned when we looked at the first issue, uh, issue 63. Mm-hmm. 
it has that alternate combat with the lines behind the swoosh, Starfleet swoosh. Uh, so it, it comes and goes, huh? I didn't notice that. Yeah, there on the last, for whatever reason, on the last couple of pages, it just, one panel, it'll be there, one panel, it's not there. Ah, uh, I see that. It just, uh... On page 23, bottom right, it's 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 disappeared. Yeah, and then on page 22, all of them disappear for the uh, the alternate team. Oh, right. So right. I thought I thought that was part of their plan. Okay, they've all taken off their communicators, and then, nope, there it is again. Nope, it's gone again. <laughs> right. Mm. And, and how about that thing? I mean, having... I'm not so sure I want computers to be having some kind of kill switch on my phaser. Well, it's like we've said before, it's all dependent on what the author of whatever story you're reading or watching right. want, wants it to do. So, in Star Trek 6, they did establish that the computer could affect the phasers going off. Right. No, Star Trek 6 just showed it that you couldn't fire it without setting off an alarm, right? I don't recall, but I do... Uh, when they mention this whole thing, it's like, okay, I'm pretty sure they established that in the TV series. Yeah, Or yeah. maybe a movie. I thought it was established in the TV series, but... Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think 6 showed that it would set off an alarm, and then in the TV series of Next Gen, it was... You could actually turn it on and off. Right. Yeah, I definitely remember in 6, that whole thing. I, Spock demoed it, right, by shooting a pot or something. Right. Either way, we've always seen that when it's convenient to the plot, you can do it just fine. <laughs> exactly. Do whatever you need to. Right. I mean, from a technology standpoint, easy enough, I could see how they could implement it. It's just... Not well, so plus, sure I want to kill if, switch If you my, could do that, why don't, why don't you just do that when the Borg show up? Nullify all... Borg disruptors inside the ship. Then you well, because I think it's like a software kill switch. Well, then the I, Borg should know. do it to our phasers so that well, as if they, we're shooting if them, they, they knew just about, go off. If they knew about the feature, sure. Yes, really? I agree. All you, all you have to do is assimilate one Federation dude, and then <laughs> they know it. Oh, okay. Right. There's the magic kill switch. We don't even have to lose two random Borg before... At the uh, beginning. Before you adapt to the uh, the frequencies. frequencies. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, there, there's another good reason why you may not want to put a, f a kill switch in your hand weapons, but whatever. Yeah, I thought it was a bit... Uh, I, I thought... It, actually, there's a couple spots in these two issues where they rely on a bit of techno babble or a lot of detail to, 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 to keep things going, but... But but I must say I, I kind of like the logic puzzles that Picard and company are dealing with. You know who's lying? You got these three different parties, and they can't all be telling the truth. So which ones are lying and which ones aren't? So I did like it here. I don't like the resolution next week or next issue. Well, it, okay, so we'll get to that then. But okay, I have something to say about that too. It yeah. <laughs> I kind of like it at the beginning, or near the beginning of the issue on page six, where you see the view from inside of Picard's fishbowl. So there, there's a panel where, because as Tavarok and yeah, is looking Picard, through it. yeah, so they're inside of his his office, his ready room, whatever you want to call it, and and you know you always notice that lionfish mm -hmm. in the bowl floating around. So as Tavarok is looking at the fish, 
they 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 switch the viewpoint looking out from the fishbowl at Tavarak and then Picard in the background. I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a shot you wouldn't get in the TV show. Right. Not to say you couldn't if they wanted to spend the money, but you've never gotten that angle before. I thought it was very creative. Right. And another right. thing is who feeds the fish and cleans the water? The computer. Well, okay, so and and I, and that made me think: Is it even a real, real fish? I mean, you know, you remember those old uh, those fish screensavers that would kind of float around on your, you know, software driven. You could have a fish bowl on your on your computer when you're not using it. Uh, they kind of went out of style a long time ago, but it was kind of interesting. Would they even would would it be a hollow fish maybe, or would that kind of miss the point? Picard would want a real fish. I think it's a real fish. I think I tend to think so too. So, but you're saying that the computer goes ahead and beams in fresh water every once in a while around the fish? Yeah, it has a little filter. It has a little filter. <laughs> yeah, I don't see any bubbles or anything. Yeah, what's where, where's the filter? Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, I like the fish. So, when the when the runabouts when it shows the runabouts wreckage, mm-hmm. um, doesn't it look like they're in, I mean, nacelles are ripped off of the ships and things like that. That seems much more intensive than what, you know, eight guys would be able to cobble back together. I completely agree. But, of course, what you're talking about is the alternate Geordi's ship, not Geordi Prime ship. Right. And when I was reading this, I thought that they were taking parts of alternate Geordi's ship, cannibalizing parts of it to to fix Geordi's ship. I don't know that they were doing that, but uh, was there a specific line or something that, get, that uh, well, led you to that assumption? No, I might have just come up with it on my own, but I thought that's what they were doing. Right. Because, I mean, you have two ships that are obviously both broken. Yeah. I mean, are you going to be able to just... I mean, is are they both just broken and can be put back together without any replacement parts? That seems unlikely. unlikely. I agree, but I think you're thinking too much, Donovan. Oh, okay. I'll stop thinking. And especially in the next issue, your yeah. point about the nacelles being ripped off of the of the fuselage, it's right. like, you know, that's a pretty serious structural problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a really tough time seeing those nacelles going on and being structurally sound enough to take a ship up through the atmosphere and into space, but, ah, well. Hey, well, let's talk about that next issue. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so um, on page eight, okay. that shot that you have to actually turn the book to see the Romulan ship looking at the Enterprise and the Cardassian ships, that's a really cool shot, I thought. Oh, right. Okay, let me get to that page. Sorry. Yes. And that's another thing that's great where you have the physical comic. Right. As opposed to the PDF. <laughs> so you're having to turn your head? I'm turning my head right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go into the PDF reader and alter it, but I'm not going to bother. Right. But that's what's odd is that the words are still... Yes. ...landscape. Yes. But the the art is portrait, so... Right. I, I, thought, that, I thought that's a cool little... I mean, you could take that picture, and then there's an, a similar one in the next issue, and you know, you can actually probably make a poster or something out of that. You could, but 
I gotta say that that just triggers me to make a, a comment about the art. Not crazy about Daryl Skelton's style. Sorry. I mean, these ships look okay. Ships look it's okay. Just, it's just that there's some kind of a diffused style to his drawing. So, you know, there there isn't as much, you know, fine line detail. It just all seems like it's gone through some kind of a, uh, I don't know, a, a diffuse filter or something. Uh, and and I, I particularly don't like how Picard looks in many close-up drawings. Right. Last episode, you kept saying that he looked like a... Yeah, One Andy. of us said that he looked like a baby face. Like yeah, a baby on a, on a man body. I, I think you pointed that one out in okay. one particular one, and I agree with you. Yeah. I think a lot of these things end up looking like Andy Warhol artwork. Right. If you uh, remember I get some you. of his artwork. Yeah. Campbell's Soup guy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Just a little bit, you know, that's fine. It's, it's, the, it's the style that Skelton chooses to employ, and I'm just not that crazy about it. You know Andy Warhol was an alien, right? Was he? Yeah, I always wondered about that. Uh, where did that, that come from? Uh, that's not a Star Trek reference. That's actually a, a Men in Black reference. Oh, okay. I, that, that makes sense. Yeah, they, Men in Black like to do a lot of revelations like that, right? Right. Yeah. Elvis was a Elvis was a alien too, right? <laughs> Elvis, who and who didn't die, just felt like leaving or something. I suppose. I, I don't. Remember yeah, he had to return back to his home planet or something. Like ah, that. okay. So truly, Elvis is not dead. Okay. He's just living on another planet. Of course. Makes sense. Right. So uh, I got a question, and this is more of just them jumping to conclusions that I think are odd. So alternate Jordy says something about Rodega 6 or whatever, and then our Jordy says, what are you talking about 6? We only have five planets. Right. And so they automatically assume that the sixth planet is the one that's different, right? That this one has, you know, the first five are all the same, and then the sixth planet is new. How did they come to that conclusion? So there could be five, you know... Oh, I see what you There mean. could be, you know, six an planets... An extra middle one. one. Right, an extra middle one. Right. You know, the, the closest one to the sun actually got sucked into the sun at some point. Whatever. Uh, well, good uh, point. Good point. But uh, apparently, this, there is no habited planet in the system in in our dimension. Now except, that doesn't ma- except for the one they're visiting. It doesn't. But have that's not habited by people. Or it doesn't. Right. Right. Okay. So uh, let me just inhabited by by intelligent life forms. Right. 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 Let me say that. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, multiple ways this could go. I, I you know, it's a story. They're just simplifying things. Right, right. Keep it simple. So, of of the three stories that are being told, I think the Cardassians is... No, I think the Romulans is the weakest. The You mean the lie? The, one the lie. Just, okay. I think that one's the weakest. That he killed people and he needs to come... His wife. Right. And his wife just happens to be the daughter of a high-ranking Romulan commander, whatever. Or politician, whatever. Right. So because it's the weakest, it's probably the one that's true. <sighs> Could be. Well, I'm not saying what's what's true or not. Although I will say a weak story 
probably is less likely to be true, but uh, you never know. Truth can be stranger than fiction. <laughs> I, I like the Cardassian story. I mean, he, he basically, they're asserting that he's uh, a different kind of vicious, moralist researcher. Right, who is you know. still working on a virus, but his vi- right. the virus they're talking about attacks Cardassians. Right. So, yeah. So that makes you kind of think that maybe the virus thing is true, just which which one? Exactly, which one? Which virus? Exactly. So, so. do viruses attack non-living cells? I think if they can derive nutrition, I think it can, but so what's rust anyway? Oxidation. Oxidation. Okay, so so that's definitely a chemical process, not a biological one. Okay, right. fine. So mold, um, fungus, things like that could attach itself to non-living matter and and eat it away, but I've never heard of a virus doing that. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not a biologist. I don't know. Right. But, you know, it's close enough to to plausible. It's like, well, maybe. Yeah. It's a comic book. I'll go with it. But, yeah, that's that's a good question. I don't know. Right. So, anyways, so. But my, my thing with uh, them sending over Riker onto a ship that may or may not have had a virus that could eat dilithium crystals doesn't seem smart. <laughs> I mean, because we well, know we've seen in many episodes of Star Trek that the biofilters on the transporters are not absolute, so you could easily bring back some of those, if there was a virus, yep. bring back some, and suddenly you've infected the flagship of the Federation with a dilithium-eating virus. Well, that, and like I mentioned in the last episode, I would want, or the last episode that we talked about this issue, Sure. I, I was in theory, I was thinking like, well, you better search the heck out of that Dr. Tavarock, because he could be carrying something that'll uh, that'll disable the Enterprise, too. Yeah, good point. So, I'm sure they did, whatever, but uh, yeah, good point. Uh, about that, and uh, at least they're so they're in spacesuits because of the potential contamination, or because the life support's down. Because it looks cool. Well, <laughs> right, and and they're pretty heavy. They look like fairly heavy duty spacesuits. I mean, or hazmat suits, or whatever the heck they are. Right. I mean, they don't look like really light little skin tight things. Like we've right. seen in other. Yeah, and they're not the big fishbowl helmeted ones either. They're they're a new style. Yeah, well, it's a new comic, different art, different artists. Might as well have a completely new design that we've never seen before. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I was reading this, or when you were giving your synopsis, um, yeah. I was surprised they they talk about the Ferengi ship leaving because that seems to be a big plot point in the next story. Oh, it's it's critical in the next story. Right. But I thought it happened in the next story. I, I forgot that he it shows up and leaves in this one. And yeah. So it's it shouldn't be that big of a revelation later. Right. Well, it, it is a clue. 
it's just not immediately obvious how it helps untie the knot hmm. of the uh, three liars or two liars and one truth teller right but which one and, and by the way don't you think the Ferengis have long range sensors and wouldn't you think they would you know scan ahead before they blunder <laughs> into a system but nah eh eh yeah, so that's one of the things I, I really don't like about Star Trek. And, yeah. and this is going to sound wrong because I like Star Trek. But I like in other sci-fi franchises, mm-hmm. when you go into faster than light travel, you're like cut off from everything yeah, until you come back in. Whereas right. Star Trek's always been very... You can see everything. You still have full communications to everyone. You can, you know make on-the-spot course corrections, things like that. So, yeah. uh, you know, like what you said, this Ferengi should have known, you know, light year not light years away, but a good distance away that he needed to stop and turn around. Well, or just come out of warp. I mean, that, that is if it didn't have those magic sensors that working work always. Come out of warp at a distance scan and then at least know what you're flying into but yeah that, that is kind of handy maybe that is what he did and his sensors just aren't as good as the enterprises well i would hope that three pretty good sized warships would would register a little differently than a cardassian you know uh scout ship or will right. transport you know much smaller transport i would hope but who knows who knows? Yes. That's all I have to say on this one. You got right. more? Nope. Okay. Shall we move on? Please. All right. So issue 65 came out in November of 1994. Uh, it's entitled The Truth Elusive. And the uh, writing staff is all the same. So the cover, uh, the art style on the cover is kind of a crude, almost paper cutout type style. It, it's kind of strange. It has several pictures, so starting from the bottom to the top, we see the back end of the Enterprise D's saucer section. Above that is uh, a depiction of a Ferengi, Cardassian, and Romulan vessel of each type. And then above that is a shot of the leaders of those three ships, Though, for whatever reason, the Romulan leader is female, where in the books she is male. So the story starts off with uh, the red-shirted alternate universe, Geordi, uh, holding his phaser at our gold-shirted Geordi. The two Geordies recount how the alternate crew reset the runabout's computers to deactivate our crew's phasers. Our Geordi seems to take a chance anyway. He pulls his phaser out and shoots the red-shirted Geordi. The other crew from our universe also blasts the alternate version crew. The phasers must be on low stun because the red-shirt Geordi stands up pretty quickly and brushes the dust off his uniform. The real Geordi tells his counterpart that he knew of the computer tampering, and he went in and tampered with the computer himself and reversed it so that the alternate Geordi's phasers would be the ones that wouldn't work. Alternate Geordi is surprised to learn that Troy is a Beta Z and that there are Beta Zs serving aboard the Enterprise in our universe. 
The two crew agree that they need to know which universe they're in so that they know what next step to take and if they need to stop the possible rogue son. That is when the Benzite Ensign raises his hand and says that he may know the answer. Meanwhile, back at the Enterprise, the Ferengi ship that arrived in the last issue has turned around and is warping away at maximum speed. The arrival and the departure of the Ferengi was the final piece Picard needed to figure out the puzzle regarding the dilemma with Tavarok. He contacts Riker and informs him that he can return back to the Enterprise. Back on the alien planet, the Ensign is laying out his logic. The flora and fauna on this planet does not seem to have the rapid evolution uh, that the other planet had. Or it doesn't seem to be going on as long as it did in the normal universe, the prime universe. So he says that this must be the alternate version of the planet, the one that the red-shirted Geordi is from. Once the other scientists confirm this, the two crews start to work on prepping our Geordi's runabout for the mission to stop the rogue star. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Picard contacts the Romulan and the Cardassian commanders. He tells them that he knows that they are both lying and that Tarvanok was telling the truth about working on a virus to attack dilithium crystals. And he is not the common criminals or extraordinary criminal that the two uh, were saying that he was. The two ships close their communication and pull away to return to their respective home planets. Back on the alien planet, the first runabout is up and running. It lifts off with the Red Geordi and his crew to stop the Rodar. The rest of the crew remain and try to fix the last runabout, which is in some pretty bad shape because there's like the, the nacelle is away from the ship. So I don't really know what these five guys are going to be doing. But there's also a time crunch now because they have to not only get off the planet, but they have to find one of those distortions to return them to the correct dimension. Back on the Enterprise, Picard meets with Tavarok. Tavarok eventually admits to planning on selling the virus to the Ferengi. He then asks Picard for asylum. Later, the Enterprise arrives at the rendezvous site for Geordi's team. They are concerned that he's not there yet. Worf notices several anomalies around the binary star system. Before too long, a runabout pushes through one of these anomalies. Distress, it starts to fall apart. But the transporter chief is able to get everyone off the runabout safely. Later, Geordi and Picard are pondering if Red Geordi's team was successful. Picard speculates that this may not be the last time they see that other version of Geordi. The end. Really? It's not the last time they're going to see that version of Geordi? I mean, what are the odds? Um, not good. <laughs> unless it's... Unless Michael Jan Friedman knows something we don't. <laughs> yes. Red Geordi. We may see Red Geordi again. Out of an infinite number of Geordies, theoretically, in an infinite number of dimensions, and if whatever anomalies that made that crossover possible are no longer happening, come on. What? Well, whatever. So did you ever understand exactly what uh, the red-shirted Geordies team was going to do to that other star? I mean, did they have some well, red matter or something to <laughs> just 
create a little singularity and suck it up? All I know is what they, they said they were going to do, which is in very generic terms. They, they, they said they were going to there was a device they were going to use to alter the trajectory of the rogue star, which oh, is another okay. interesting thing. So they're basically saying this rogue star is traveling through the heavens, what, like a comet or something? It just it just seemed like an odd it just seemed like an odd thing for a star to be doing. Right. But whatever. I agree. Uh, you know, and, and and so it's a star. Okay, so it's probably a small star, but you're going to alter the trajectory of a star. It's like, yeah, but I agree. I agree with you when you mentioned red matter. It's got to be something big, you know, something really special to be able to affect a star in any way, shape, or form. Right. So. Se- seems a little far fetched. Yeah. But hopefully they succeeded. Well. Nothing as far-fetched as putting back together the ship with no major tools to put those nacelles back on. Well, they could probably just wrap some ropes around it, some of those vines. Maybe they got duct tape. There you go. That's probably Duck it. it. Just duck it. <laughs> yes. I mean, e- e- even moving those engines into place, I would think, would be extremely hard. Unless, what, were they using transporters or something? I don't, you know, what, what are they... What kind of high-tech hocus-pocus is going to allow that small number of people to get those nacelles even in place to be able to weld back on or whatever they whatever right. tech they use to reattach them? Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. I don't know. Well, I didn't like it. it. Didn't like it. Didn't like it. Didn't like it one bit. <laughs> now you had alluded to the pre- in the previous issue about how you weren't crazy about maybe some aspects of how Picard came to his uh, final conclusion about who was actually lying. Right. Did you want to go on about that? Well, just, I mean, just because the Ferengi show up and leave. Right, right. Which I get. And, yeah, that means that maybe the Ferengi were going to try to meet up with the little craft. I, I get what conclusion he came up with, but it just seemed really fast that he would just make one phone call to both of them. You're both lying and then they're both like, oh, he caught us. Yeah. And just turn around and, and they hang up after that. Oh, we're caught. They, oh. they don't even say anything. They're just like, They just hang up right away. And then I just thought that was very abrupt and very, like, anticlimactic. Yeah, but but the thing is Picard did not have absolute proof. However, he had enough to go on, and his logic, I think, was sound enough that he thought he had enough to play the gambit and go in their face and saying, "I know what happened, and this is what happened, and we're keeping him." Bye, you know. Right. So, you know, what, what he did not have absolute proof, so he had convictions in what he thought happened, and he had enough proof that I, I would, I would have done the same gambit. Because what what the heck would what would the Romulans or the Cardassians need from a Ferengi? I mean, they wouldn't need the Ferengi for anything. So, well, but that I mean, both everybody knew that he was escaping from somebody. So, right, just because that guy, just because you know he's 
escaping from somebody and the Ferengi show up doesn't necessarily mean that he couldn't be the one that was going to try to kill all the... I mean, killing the the Cardassians still seems possible. Okay, uh, so... I mean... Right, okay, so, so let's say he did kill the Cardassians. That seems like a far stronger... The far stronger argument, which I guess I alluded that earlier, that seems like the far stronger argument than the uh, the political ramifications of him killing the daughter of a senator or whatever. I think the Rom- again the Romulans was the least likely for for the Romulans to put this much on the line to try to get him back. So right. I agree with that one. But yeah, I mean, if he truly killed hundreds of Cardassians in some kind of a plot, but then Worf's point is good about that being BS. So if you look at a uh, a chart of of space and see where all the players are, Worf pointed out that Cardassian space is on the other side. Well, the Federation is between right. Cardassian between. space. Exactly. So, so the idea of absorbing the Cardassians, they'd have to go through Federation space to conquer them. It doesn't sound... I mean, having two boarding the Federation on two fronts like that would be a coup. No two ways about that in any kind of a military situation if it ever came down to that. But what's the practicality of taking over a, a, a system, a, a big empire that you've got to cut across your enemy's uh, territory to get to? Right. And is the Cardassians really all that powerful compared to the Romulans? No, I don't, I don't think they are. Yeah, I don't think so either. And when they were coming into conflict with the Klingons in the issue a little while ago, the issues, the story arc there, I think ultimately they would have lost. Because, again, I don't think they're as big as the Klingons. But um, yeah. but they still, you know, they're a formidable force, just not as big as the, the two main bad guys. Right. And as we'll see soon, uh, once they team up with the Dominion, then... Uh, ah, the Dominion. Their uh, Their threat factor will go up quite a bit. Exactly, yeah. Well, I was just thinking about um, that great episode of DS9 where the Picard lookalike comes in with the uh, galaxy-class starship, which looks like the Enterprise, but isn't, and ends up getting blasted to bits by the uh, Dominion. Uh, right. I, I thought that was uh, that was a pretty cool episode and a pretty interesting event. Yeah, no, I, I think the whole Dominion War was was great. Yep, Big it was time. great, great setup, great, uh, great ongoing, and then, uh, and then the ending was good. I, I, I that's why I think Deep Space Nine's the best out of all the series. But cool. it's just me. Yeah, but the thing is, that didn't come up until the end of the run. I mean, what was it? The last two years? The last year? No, it was. The, it was. It was. Burp, it was well, okay, so obviously it was happening. They started the planting s- the seeds starting with season three and four. Okay. So that was that was a very cool story arc, and I and I love some of the special effects they did in some of the, the the battles where they had a huge number of Federation ships going up a huge number of Dominion and Cardassian ships. So I thought that was cool. It's just that that was just a part of the series. I thought it was kind of slow in the mm. first several seasons myself. So, I'm still right. an X-Gen fan. Of course. As you should be, Ken. <laughs> As I should be. <laughs> I, I, I love Deep Space Nine, especially like the last couple seasons. But, um, 
Anyway, so let's see what else we have. So um, when the uh, just real quick, when that Ferengi turns tail and run on yeah. page five, right? That's another one of those I thought was a cool artistic choice where you had the full page was the main the main focus on the page was the Ferengi ship, and then in behind it you could see the uh, Enterprise and the two Cardassian ships and yep. the uh, Romulan ship. But you have to actually turn the book to see the full thing. Well, right. you can you see the full thing. And well, yeah, but you, it looks best when you turn it on its side. Exactly. And the Frangi ship looks pretty good, too. It's just, it's purple, though. Or lavender. Right. Yeah. Which is like, wait a minute. I mean, that may look nice and stuff in the picture, but they're tan, right? You can paint it whatever he wants to. Whatever well, the, the Darmok wants. <laughs> so it's a special paint job. Sure, why not? It's a a comic book. You don't have to be, you don't have to, you know, confine yourself to whatever the model is. You can throw a paint job on whatever you want. Now, you are Mr. uh, Continuity, and you're saying this to me. I am. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm fine with it. Okay, well. Indeed. I'm, I'm pulling the Continuity card out. (laughs) <laughs> You're normally the one that does it, but I'm pulling it out now. Fair and I will enough. also mention to you that in issue 64, that the ship, though not exactly the right shade, is a brown color. Yeah, which uh, makes page 21. Right. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> yeah, no, that one. Enough. That one definitely looks more normal, like right. an orangey color. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of a weird brown, orange, kind of dark tan. It's at least it's closer to what they always had on the TV series. Right, right. So, go ahead. What were you? Uh, what was your next comment? Oh, it was clever of Jordy Prime to use Troy's uh, emotion reading abilities to detect the duplicity in alternate Jordy, Red Jordy's uh, plans and people so I thought that was cool it made perfect sense and then read Jordy's uh, response saying what a Betazoid on a Starfleet ship so it kind of made you know they really beat you over the head about this really makes sense guys about uh, Jordy figuring all this out ahead of time the gambit that was right. being played but it's so it, it pretty made convenient sense. that the exactly the word Jordy convenient doesn't know about Betazoids exactly Exactly. And the thing is, he doesn't necessarily... I mean, it wasn't like Jordy Prime introduced Troy and said, oh yeah, she's a Betazoid. Right. You know, he didn't have to say any of that. So, but it does make a lot... It it, it underscores how it's handy to have a uh, Betazoid on the ship. Sure. Yeah, I just... That whole scene, it just reminded me of, you know, those... You know, when he's like, oh, I I knew you were going to do that, so I went ahead and did this first. I uh, knew you knew that I knew that you knew, so I did A, B, and C. Right. So, uh, I know that you're a fan of uh, Doctor Who. Uh, back when it was canceled, they did a, uh, a special called uh, The Case of the Fatal Death. Oh, that was the Rowan Atkins, Atkinson yeah, thing. Yeah, where Rowan Atkinson played the uh, the ninth Doctor. Yeah, that was a charity thing. 
You're right. And in that, he gets captured by the master, and the master's like, uh, you know, I'm going to, you know, flip the switch, and you're going to be caught in the trap because I went into the past and I, you know, worked with somebody to create the trap. And he flips yes. the switch, and of course, the master's the one that gets caught in the trap. And then the doctor's yes. like, well, I knew that you knew that I was going to be standing here, so I went <laughs> further in the past and I got the architect exactly. to put it there. And then, you know, and then it goes on and on and on because yes. they keep going up in each other where they went further and further back in time because they knew. And that's what this reminded me of, just like, really? <laughs> Yeah. I knew that you knew that I was going to. That I knew, to, yes. Uh... <laughs> yeah, and that and that episode, was, I think Ben Elton, Blackadder fame, had a hand in writing that, I think. And that is so Blackadder, but... Right. Yeah, that well, was... Uh, yeah, I mean, if we're to... talking about that episode, if you are a fan of Doctor Who, in the new, the new season, we have uh, uh, Richard E. Gant uh, being controlled by the... the what are the... Supreme Intelligence or whatever he's been in the last couple episodes, and he played one of the uh, the doctors in that fa- case of the Fatal Death because he regenerates a few times, and he also played the Ninth Doctor in a animated series called uh, the Scream of the Shakla. Yes. So uh, uh, thank you for for mentioning that to me. I was completely unaware of its existence, and I had obtained it and and watched it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's good, uh, and, and that was actually, I think, uh, what kind of kickstarted uh, what ended up being the the true Ninth Doctor, uh, Christopher Eccleston, Eccleston. whatever. Seemed, uh, even though, even though they're almost nothing. I mean, they don't. I mean, no, looks they, wise, they don't look anything alike. Dress wise, they're nothing alike. But right. No, but I think that series being out there and it being as popular as it was, just being a web series on the BBC dot com. Right. Proved that oh this there is a market. This franchise does have a uh, a fan base. Well, really, it's like Star Trek when it took its hiatus, and I'm talking about the latest hiatus for Star Trek when it went away. They they, they stopped uh, making the movies, and then they came back with the new movies that came in 2009. They knew they had a market. Doctor Who knew they had a market. Paramount knew they had a Star Trek market, but they just had oversaturated things. And it, and in the case of Doctor Who, I don't think it was oversaturation, but it was just been around for so long. And I think the creative team just ran out of really good ideas, and they needed to take a break. So it was just a question of when to bring them back. Um, and right, so that web series on Doctor Who, probably the Chakra or whatever, probably prompted them to say, oh, it's time, let's bring it back. Let's make some money. Worldwide distribution. Yep, and they are. Yep, they are. <laughs> it's quite a popular series. Yeah, my wife, BBC. again, being a big... She was a big fan when she was a kid. Um, right. She you know, she loves that Doctor Who's so popular, and it's pretty much mainstream now. Right. Uh, but then there's also a little part of it that's like, you guys just... Y'all are like fake Doctor Who fans, because <laughs> ah. <laughs> she's been a fan for so long, and they just jump on the bandwagon. Uh you know, with the ninth, tenth, and eleventh Doctor. Ah, well, okay. Yeah, you don't feel like that when someone just likes the new Star Trek movie. And, no, not uh, at all. The old ones are crap. Oh well, I don't like that. <laughs> Anybody that says that, I'm sorry. The special effects look look terrible. It's like it was the '60s. It's like they didn't have any budget. Technology was was primitive. It's like, what do you expect? 
Right. Yeah, but I think it's great that Abrams is able to draw uh, on a broader audience. I think it's great that Moffat and his team are able to draw a, a bigger audience for Doctor Who. I think that's great. Uh, I do too. Yeah, it means it'll be around longer for the hardcore fans like us. Right. Yep. I agree, Ken. Yeah. So. But I think we've gone way off into the weeds. Do you, yes, we what have. Else, what else we got on this one? The last thing I just wanted to say is uh, which what we said before. The two nacelles are completely off the ship. So somehow, Geordi Prime's team is able to get the two nacelles on the ship, journey into space, which, you know, that's a stressful thing uh, on a on a ship. I mean, we we know what the what the what the NASA ships have to go through to get into space. It's not an easy thing. And then they're able to get themselves back into the same weird EM anomaly, whatever, to get them back to just the right place. You know, it, you know our our universe. It's like uh, it's just a it's just a heavy dose of uh, suspended disbelief. Agreed. Yeah, I. That is some some great duct tape they got. <laughs> well, that not only being able to you know cross dimensions again. So great, all that happened. Right, but were you feeling the uh, the tension when you thought that they may not pull through? Are you kidding? <laughs> of course not. Of course, we knew they'd get back. It's just how you know how how well would they explain it? You know, right, right, and I just don't think it was that well explained. But eh, whatever, nothing's perfect. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the story arc overall. No, I did too. I I I, I did. Although I was kind of beating it up earlier, I did like it. Yeah, cool. And uh, can I make one other comment? Yes, please. Um, and, and this is just a, a tip of the hat to the uh, artist. On page four of uh, this issue, yes, it shows the Benzite kind of raising his hand, saying, "I have an idea." Oh right, okay, yeah. And it shows that he has two opposable thumbs. Ah, good. So they're doing the. Uh, that's a nice bit of detail. Yes. Hey, I, don't think... I do not remember. I do not remember that detail from the TV series. And and that guy popped up multiple times in multiple episodes, but I don't remember that detail. Yeah, it's not the same guy, but the same species. Right. Well, I don't think they ever actually come out and say it, but they do show his hand from time to time, or his or hers. I, I can't. I think there's there was a female one a, a couple times, too. But, you know, when they did a close-up of the hand, they did show that it had two opposable thumbs instead of a pinky. And, uh, you know, the the artist here could have easily just drawn a normal-looking hand, and I don't. I think 99% of the people wouldn't have caught it. I wouldn't. But I thought it was kind of cool that uh, there on page four, he clearly has uh, two opposable thumbs. <laughs> so, hats off to you, sir. <laughs> hats off to you. So, shall we go on to number 66? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So number 66 is entitled Just Desserts, published date December 1994. Writer is Michael Jan Friedman, penciler Daryl Skelton, colorist Jean D'Angelo, letterer Bob Panaha, editor Margaret Clark. 
The cover is a stock next-gen cover saying nothing about the story within. The Enterprise D is at the top of the page. The lower half is populated by Captain Picard and six of his bridge crew. The story opens on the bridge of the Enterprise as they are coming in visual range of an intriguing and rare space-faring creature. The creature returns to the planet of Utalabria on a 100-year cycle and likes to consume nuclear waste. Very interesting. The creature's eating habits came as a godsend to the people of Utalabria 100 years ago when they desperately needed a way to rid themselves of their built-up stockpiles of nuclear waste. Back then, the creature ate the waste for free and allowed the Utalabrians to focus their resources on becoming a planet that focused on the arts and creative endeavors. Now that it is returning after a 100-year absence, the people of Utalabria are counting on the creature to again rid them of another 100 years of nuclear waste buildup at no cost to their society. Meanwhile, in sickbay, Dr. Crusher uses advanced medical gene therapy to desensitize a young boy who was allergic to a decontaminant that is pumped throughout the ship's ventilation system. During the treatment, she explains the origins of allergic reactions in humans. She explains how, on first exposure, the allergen does not trigger a negative reaction, but on subsequent exposure results in the traditional physiological reactions of allergies. She wraps up her rather long but informative explanation, saying they can treat it effectively these days in a matter of minutes. The treatment commences. Meanwhile, in 10 Forward, Worf, Geordi, and Alexander discuss the choice the Utalabrians made a century ago. Geordi and Alexander don't blame them for accepting the good fortune and letting the Eater, the name that they've given to the creature, solve their nuclear waste issue for them. Worf clearly disagrees and asks where the Utalabrians will look for the solution to their next ultimate crisis. You either confront your problems head-on by yourself, or you doom yourself to be forever dependent on others to solve your problems. Picard and his diplomatic party beam down and meet Chancellor Lan, who welcomes him and professes how excited his people are with the return of the Eater. Not long after the beam down, the Eater is sighted coming in above a nuclear waste dump not far from Picard and the Chancellor's location. They get a view as the magical creature shows its ability to fly through the air as well as space in a relatively low flyby of the Chancellor, who has his arms outstretched to the creature. Rather than consuming the nuclear waste, though, the creature opens up fire with laser beams coming out of its head and blows the waste to dust, which floats up into the atmosphere and is carried by the wind. Not a good situation. Shocked over the turn from savior to destroyer, Chancellor Lan asks Picard to destroy the Eater to save his people. Picard says he has a responsibility to Lan and his people on many levels, but he also has a responsibility to the creature. He will try to find a way to save it also. After much discussion, Dr. Crusher observes that the creature ate greedily on the nuclear waste on its first visit to Utalabria but now is destroying it like it's poison. 
She connects some dots and theorizes its behavior is similar to an allergic reaction. Did the nuclear waste not sit well with the creature's first visit? And now to avoid the same pain it experienced the first time is destroying the waste? Since they did not think of using the tractor beams to harmlessly pull the creature away from the planet, Picard tells the doctor to implement her plan to come up with some magical treatment that will cure the creature of its allergic reaction to the nuclear waste, as she has done earlier with the sick boy. They race to implement the plan before the creature reaches the next nuclear waste site over Chancellor Land's pleas for Picard to destroy the eater now. Picard says if Dr. Crusher's plan fails, he will destroy the eater. They use the ship's replicators to manufacture huge quantities of the concoction to desensitize the creature, and they deliver it into the creature's butt using probes that look suspiciously like photon torpedoes. The eater continues on to the next nuclear dump and opens up fire on it. Just as it looks like Dr. Crusher's desensitizing agent did not work, the creature stops firing and starts eating. The day is saved by Dr. Crusher and the Enterprise crew. Picard takes the opportunity to state what a wanker the Chancellor and his people are for depending too much on other people and other creatures to resolve their problems. They depend too much on the Eater to resolve their nuclear waste problem, then too much on the Enterprise to destroy the Eater when it turned into a destroyer. They need to get off their lazy liberal artistic butts and proactively solve their own problems. After the Chancellor apologizes and says they have much to think about, Picard says it's never too late to learn the lesson of self-reliance. The end. Oh man, this was a good one. <laughs> it's a good one to make fun of. I don't even know how good it is for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, so uh, two messages, right? What was all right, so one message, nuclear waste bad, you should do something with it. Yeah, nuclear waste bad and maybe even nuclear or at least the primitive form of nuclear fission that we use today is bad. And then the other one is you know, self-reliance. You know, self don't be reliance. don't be so dependent on other people. Two messages. Huh. So that little boy at the beginning, he wasn't reliant on Crusher at all. So he should have just. I, I think I think he should have just toughed it out. Exactly. All he right. should have he should have toughed it out and let his own biological processes help. But oh wait, allergic reaction is part of the body's own reaction to uh, yeah, misreaction so, to things uh, in the atmosphere. So I'm getting mixed messages here. I need yeah. to be 100% self-reliant, but I should also be able to ask the doctor for help. But yeah. I shouldn't be able to ask somebody for help if a giant monster is destroying my city. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I don't know why I was confused. Isn't the whole point of the Federation, or part of the point of the Federation, that they're mutually helping each other in security and, you know, maybe sharing of technology or something? You know, it's a mutual benefit thing, right? Right. So, yeah. So. Apparently, they're not supposed to help anybody if you're a member of the Federation, because because this 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 planet is a member of the Federation. So. Right. Yeah, they clearly say that at the beginning. Yep. Anyway, how about the creature? 
Oh man, is it awesome! <laughs> <laughs> a very handy creature. You know, he comes back every hundred years when you've got a lot of nuclear waste to get rid of. Right. And he eats it. Oh, he eats it, all right. Unless he has an allergic reaction. So he's only been there one other time. And yet, everybody knew that he was going to come back in another hundred years. Yeah, they didn't explain that very well, did they? Right, because they said he came back, or he's going to come back to finish eating. So that means that he didn't even eat all of the nuclear waste from... The last hundred years. Oh, finish. I didn't get that. Okay. I thought at one point they used the word finish, so I was like, okay, so they're not they're not still creating more nuclear waste. He's thinks just gonna eat the rest of it. And here I thought they were continuing to create nuclear waste. Uh, I don't know. Which you is might, which is one of my comments. Like, okay. Which is one of my comments. I mean, they're 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 advanced now, right? I mean, don't they have? Uh, I mean, isn't the Federation sharing the 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 wonderfulness of fusion? power generation. I mean, the Enterprise even has fusion power plants on board the ship that they use also, although matter-antimatter is the main source of power. So, you know, upgrade them. I'm no expert, but I thought fusion reactions produce little to no waste out the other end as opposed to fission. But upgrade them, Federation. Oh, I'm sorry, you want them to be independent. Okay. (laughs) No, I thought that they said they were going to finish eating it. Yeah, and I guess that would make more sense. But even that, just because you suddenly don't have a stockpile of old nuclear waste, how was that stopping you from being an enlightened, advanced society? Uh, I don't see how if someone just came and took away all your garbage, that suddenly makes you (laughs) so great. I mean, you're still going to be creating new garbage of some sort, or... I mean, was really well, holding, you know, was having a big landfill of, <laughs> you know, drums of nuclear waste really holding you back that much and on a on a global scale? Well, okay, so they're overstating the point. But the point was that since they did not have to pay any kind of price to process the nuclear waste or to shoot it into space towards their sun or do something with it, that they didn't have to pay the price of that. I mean, the, the monetary price of dealing with that waste. So they were able to take those resources, that money that they would have spent on on dealing with their problem, and they were able to funnel it into other areas that allowed them the free time to become the uh, the artists and the craftsmen that they became. Mm-hmm. I, that, that was their point, yeah. I think. But a little overstating, I think, a lot, Yes, because I don't think that's the only woe that a planet would have. Exactly. It isn't. Yeah, so... I don't know. I I wasn't a big fan of this story at all. Yeah. Well, I definitely, at a very, very high level, I kind of like that they're underscoring the problems of nuclear waste disposal. Because we got it. We're living it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The Yucca Flats underground storage facility, which I've been hearing about for years, that is like, I mean, millions and millions of dollars over budget, decades late, and they may never end up opening it. So in the meantime, we, the U.S., Europe, China, you know, Japan, anybody who has nuclear plants, they're producing all this nuclear waste, and we don't have a good place to put it. 
I mean, basically, this stuff is being put into these huge vats filled with water. I think it's water. And they're just sitting there. <laughs> you know. And right. we need to eventually do something with it. So it's a very real problem. It's just that we have not solved. And um, well, we need to get the eater over here. Well, you know, the eater. The magic. Okay, the magical creature that flies through space and is able to come down and also not only locomotion through space, and it kind of looks like a. For those of you that may not have the comic, it kind of looks like a big amoeba, kinda, with all these little, little, little hairs coming off it or something. And no, it, it looks like a giant cat furball. A giant cat furball. So think about okay. Think about the last furball your cat really hocked up a good one. It's that floating in space. Well, okay, I kind of see what you because it has all these weird things sticking out of it. Yeah, and even the color is all like orange, oh, it's like a purple, purple, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so they. I don't have a cat, but so <laughs> I I, th- I thought a furball would be more the color of the cat mixed with dirt. But okay. Well, if you had an orange purple cat, it would look just like this. Okay, I, I see that. And a little green <laughs> thrown in. Yes, I see that. Yeah, it'll it'll always have green thrown in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no matter okay. what color your cat. Is. So no idea how this propel this thing propels itself through space, but it goes through space, and then it's magically able to enter the atmosphere without being burned up, and fly through the air counteracting the force of gravity so it must have some kind of anti-grav abilities built into its organs and it can float down just above your nuclear waste sites and just lap up all the the stuff somehow uh, which apparently is stored in some kind of incredibly long long metal uh, tubes or something because right. the waste site looks like there's these incredibly long thin like tube things going up into the air um yeah. And then, to top it off, it has lasers coming out of its head. I, oh, my God. Yeah, so they... Yeah. yeah, so basically it's not really lasers, I don't think. I think it's like regurgitating the oh, nuclear uh, power uh, somehow. Uh, uh, fine, and I, and I thought the same thing. It's just, it's just look at it. And so it's, directed oh, no, energy, it it's like a directed it. energy beam of some kind. Right. So, yes, I, I understand where it gets its power source, apparently, the nuclear waste. But look, it, it's shooting, on one, on one scene, it's shooting four directed energy beams that look like yellow lasers. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my god. So awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, it's, it's... I'll be honest, I couldn't find anything that I actually liked in this issue. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not an A-list story, I'll tell you that. Anyway, I don't even know if it's a B-list story. But, yeah. But thank God the art salvages it. Uh-huh. You know, the skeleton's art is not bad. I mean, it's it's not... It's not it's not bad. It's just... Well, the creature uh, is bad. Uh, I would agree with that. But how would you draw this thing? I mean, if you, if they, if uh, if Friedman gives you this script, how would you draw the thing? It's like wow, uh, a giant space whale. A giant space whale. Okay. With well. with with uh, you know some 
radioactive spikes, you know, so it looks kind of like Godzilla. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Oh, like out the back? Yeah. That 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 when it shoots its uh it its fire up. breathing stuff, the uh the back scales light up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Do a little channel of Godzilla. I like it. Uh-huh. They should have talked to you, man. <laughs> That's what it is. So, uh, <sighs> speaking of artwork, how old do you think that that mayor or whatever of the president of the planet the he has to be over 100 years old? Oh, yeah. yeah he it's, doesn't it's, look it. Well, maybe it's a long-lived species. Who knows? Right. Vulcans yeah, stick around forever, so who knows? Sure, yeah. Humans are the weakest of, of the whole universe. You aren't kidding. I mean, we don't no, even have we... giant lobes like the Ferengi. And that's okay. Is it? That's really okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we we've always been the weakest in these in these stories. Yeah, this guy is old, obviously old, because he remembers back to how it was before the eater. He remembers the the the, the poverty, the crime, the all social ills possibly possible that were envisaged upon upon their people until the eater arrived. Yeah. Right. So as soon as we can. As soon as we can get rid of our nuclear waste, which, you know, we've only had nuclear waste for 100, 90, you know, not even 100 well, years. Well, like the 50s. Right. So, and we never had crime before that, or poverty, or <laughs> anything, so. So as soon as yeah. we can get rid of the problem we've only had for the last 60-something years, then we'll get back to that utopia we had, you know, in the 30s. Yeah. Well, if you watch movies from the 30s and 40s, you might think it is utopia, but huh. they tend to be kind of positive. Yeah, let's 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 see how Europe was doing in the 30s. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about reality. I'm talking about <laughs> movies. Yes, I'm talking about reality and his comment that, you know, as soon as the nuclear waste was gone, we were, you know, that was the cause of the poverty and the crime and all that stuff, and I'm thinking... What are you talking about? Crime no, it, and it, poverty have been here since day one. Yeah. It's 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 the resources that were freed up that allowed them to focus on their social problems and overcome them. But the thing is, obviously they were they weren't doing anything about it before. They were just stockpiling it. So really <laughs> what was freed up? Nothing right. was freed up. You just cleaned up your uh, your nuclear waste problem and didn't spend new money to deal with it. Yeah, no. If they would have said that they their health all improved or some sort of environmental impact, I would have bought that more than yeah. We all became such great people, right? Yeah. So, so it, bottom line is Michael Michael Jan Friedman, uh, a very good writer. He's done some great stories. This isn't one of them. Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder if this one was kind of suggested to him. Oh. Can you can you do an environmental episode for? Right. Yeah, just whip out something. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Or maybe it's just something that, that he felt strongly about and just right. didn't execute well. Yeah. It's no. it's it, it it's too much of a it's all too forced. The whole thing's just too forced. Right. And and the whole allergy thing was just Now Man, that's convenient that you just spent four pages talking about this little boy's allergy. Exactly. And... Now the uh, the the monster needs an enema too, and everything's great. <laughs> well, I did. I will say this: I found it. I found the discussion fascinating about the history 
of how supposedly allergies came to be in right. people. Sure. So I found that interesting. But the idea that you you could do genetic or whatever kind of treatment they did to desensitize humans to their allergies, okay, that's cool. You're a human. You've been you've been studying this for a long time. But now you've got this space creature, which you know very little about. You've done nothing to figure out its own biology, or at least if you did anything to figure out its biology, it would have had to be done by by sensor readings, and you would have had to do your analysis pretty doggone fast. And then you're able to whip up this uh, this desensitizing agent or thing that that alters its uh, biology. Certainly, uh, it's like oh my god, it's like no, I'm sorry. But the idea that human allergy comes from a historical need in our ancestors to deal with parasites uh, that were apparently prevalent and we didn't know anything about them so we're taking in all these parasites and our bodies react to it but then when our when we actually cook our food and clean our water we don't have the same kind of parasites to deal with and that turns into allergies and our body reacts to to like non-harmful things because it can't react to parasites anymore I thought it kind of sounded like BS but maybe that is where allergies come from and I and I feel educated so are you going to look it up to see if you should feel educated uh, you're just going to take take it for granted well because Michael Jan Friedman would not mislead you well I don't think he would That that's why that's why I, I think I think that probably is a real uh, origin of allergies. Right. But it's just like I have never heard that before. I never heard either. And mm. and quite frankly, some things in science are a theory that may have a preponderance of evidence to support it, but in the end, you really don't know for sure. And then people just say things that are not absolutely proved are real based on evidence fitting it but it may not really be real you don't know for sure and I don't know how could you know for sure that that this theory is real right is it just a theory that that seems to fit the facts I don't know yep yep I don't know well maybe in 300 years they'll know for sure yes perhaps well once we can start doing time travel and can actually see things firsthand. We won't have to have theories. We'll know. Yes. Yes. All right. What else you got? Um, let me see. I thought the discussion in Ten Forward with Worf and Jordy and Alexander. Um, you know. I, you know. I guess that. I guess you had to have a little debate going on. I thought it was an interesting choice of people to have the debate. I think Worf was a little extreme. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm more like with Jordy and Alexander. Hey, if he's going to come down and take care of your problem, well, why look at the gift horse in the mouth? Quite frankly, but right. Exa- again, the doc, the doctor helped that little boy out. Uh, right. Should he? Should he have? You know, not. No. Right. I need to be. I need to be self-reliant. Back off, Doctor Crusher. I don't think so. Right. Because you can't do anything about that. I mean. 
just putting the other point in, there's nothing the kid could do about his allergies himself. Self-reliance would not have worked at all. No. But, I don't know. Yep, it's as, like most things in life. There's gray area here. You need to depend upon other people. Uh, and in fact, like I said before, the Federation, w- I thought, was built on mutual benefit. So, as one of the tenants. Right. Anyway. That's yep. it. That's all I have to say. All right. Well, we don't have any uh, expanded universe today because this is during the time when they were making Generations. In fact, it comes out next month uh, as far as book published dates go. Right. Uh, so there's no episodes to talk about. So I guess we'll be back next week with episode 121. Uh, Sounds good. Yeah, I think we'll do 121 next week. Yeah, it would make sense, <laughs> this being 120. Right, so uh, that will be the last of the Countdown to Darkness uh, miniseries. <laughs> cool. And the next ongoing issue. Yes. So that'll be fun. Yep. My son just bought his midnight movie ticket like a month a month and a half ahead of time. So right. he he's dialed in to the movie. And him doing that is helping to underscore to me how soon the movie's gonna come out. Right. Next week. Well as far as release dates go. As far as release dates <laughs> go. But as I mentioned at the beginning, we're recording this uh, on the sixth of April. So so yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that, but it's coming up on us, man. It's to be, be honest, here. to me, it's the countdown that's getting me. Well, like we're doing, you know, countdown to darkness number four is the next episode. So I'm like, oh right. my goodness, we are really close to uh, close to the countdown being done and it being here. Right. And watching it in IMAX 3D. <laughs> Which will of course be the only incredibly stupidly expensive way we'll see it. Sorry. Well, I don't know. I might go see it. The regular one, too. I want to see how the comments oh, are watching. on your... <laughs> <laughs> so, so you might see that on your fifth viewing at the theaters. I'll probably only do the 3D IMAX ones. Yeah. Well, I'll probably just see it... Uh, just because there's not one really close to my house, so it's kind of a hassle. chore to get there. Right. So, all right. Well, I'll probably see it twice in the theaters, too, but we'll see what happens. Right, right. It's not like Star Wars when I was young and had a lot of time where I saw it like eight times in the theater. Well, you saw the first Star Trek, the 2009 one, several times. I did. I did. Because I know I went with you at least twice, maybe three times. (laughs) Was it three times? I I do agree, twice at least. Right. Maybe three, I don't know. All right. Well, take care, and uh, we'll be back next week. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.
Let's get the hell out of here.